0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with an amazing rotating cast of guest hosts. I'm Hold Me, Touch Me, Steve Gunley. Uh, my guest today is wearing a cardboard belt. Very exciting. It's Diana Goodman. Hey, Diana. Hello. Oh, so happy I could con you into being here. I mean, I'm so happy <laughs> you could be here.
1: No, this is one I pushed for. Yeah. I pushed pretty hard on this uh, for a couple of reasons. Let's start with... I feel like if you're talking about the producers, you should probably have a Jew around. Wait a minute. Mel Brooks is Jewish. I know, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely essential. Uh, Yes, we are talking today about The Producers, directed by Mel Brooks. This opened wide on March 18th, 1968. It stars Zero Mostel, Gene Wilder, Dick Sean, a bunch of other amazing pros, uh, I, I have not revisited this movie in like 20 years. I think I've, I've, oh I'm have more familiar with the musical at this point. And I was delighted and surprised to see how much this original movie just absolutely blows the musical out of the water. Like, yeah. in every... I actually just finished rewatching the 2005 movie version of the musical, which I know is kind of universally, like, you know, meh. But, uh... It it just kind of reiterated my one sort of uh uh theater nerd hot take, which is that the producer's musical isn't all that good, I don't think. Like, I don't know. I I I think it's just it's not a terribly remarkable musical. But Yeah,
1: it's never I, I've never seen the musical. I've listened to the original cast album, and it's fine, but I think they make some changes to modernize it that are mistakes. I mean, you you can't get rid of LSD, man. No, no. That's just a big mistake. Lorenzo Saint Dubois is- <laughs> every frame of him is fucking gold.
0: The absolute biggest laugh I had watching the movie this time was like, you know, so we, we see LSD like auditioning for a while and it's not until they cut wide that you realize we've only been seeing him from the waist up and he's wearing <laughs> the most incredible, like, Hip high shag boots, like <laughs> that was the absolute biggest laugh out of it. Like, like everyone else in the theater has been seeing these boots the entire time, but they save that reveal until he's actually singing and dancing. It was so good. But I mean, yeah, the musical too. Like it, it makes it makes a mistake that I usually would not consider a mistake, and in that they expand a role for the only female character of note in the movie. They, yeah, they expand Ula's part. And like I normally I'm a thousand percent in favor of that. But like Ula is really funny as kind of a prop, almost <laughs> like the way they use her in, in the Brooks movie is like, you know, like like she's. Yeah. Yeah. like She's not really a character yeah. necessarily. She's a sight yeah. gag. Uh, yeah. And in the movie, like she she has a love affair with Bloom and like they they run off to Rio together. It's like, uh, OK, I don't know if this necessarily needed to be there.
1: Yeah. I mean it's it's nice to actually give a female character a personality or agency and she's not Yeah, basically a wind up toy. Yeah who <laughs> yeah. has no not a single thought in her head except go to work equals go go dance. Right. And that makes perfect sense to her. Yeah, like, yes, obviously, this is my job.
0: Yeah, yeah. I sit around
1: in this office until they tell me to work, and then I go-go dance until they tell me to stop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's how I I conduct my life. I I will go-go dance (laughs) until people tell me to stop, Uh, which usually happens pretty quickly. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So I, I feel like uh, the the common refrain you hear, especially from like shitty modern people with bad takes on film, is that uh, when in reference to Mel Brooks' films, is that, oh, you couldn't make a movie like this anymore. You couldn't make mm-hmm. The Producer. You couldn't make Blazing Saddles. And I'm just like, no, you couldn't, asshole. Uh, I think you can <laughs> make a movie like this. I think you can make a movie that's like gleefully gleefully offensive. And I think Brooks is kind of the master of it. There's something... There's something in his writing, in his presentation, in the, the outwardly vaudevillian kind of way he conducts himself that makes mm. it feel like it's all in good fun for everyone. Like, you don't feel any kind of malice behind any of his satire, except for maybe Nazis.
1: Uh, yeah. Th- which, Well, and that's fun. that's, like, his fundamental point that I find so interesting is that, like— it's so weird to be talking about this like in 2020 at a moment where we have like actual Nazis running around, but they always say it was just a joke. Right? What whatever it is that you call them on, it's it, they say, "Oh no, it's just a joke. It's just edgy humor," and it's like here we have, I mean, just the edgiest of humor, and you can tell right away. No, it's completely. It's all in fun, and he he always. Mel Brooks always goes back to making making Nazis look ridiculous. He does that over and over and over because it robs them of their power. You you can't take them seriously. And it's, it's a weird issue because, like, either you ignore Nazis, which doesn't work, you take Nazis seriously as a threat, which often plays into their ideas of, like, we are a threat, like, we're so fucking tough and you can't stop us, or you make fun of them, which can also lead to people not taking them seriously enough it's like they're yeah it's It's such a a tough thing but part of the nazi uber mention idea so many of their beliefs are just so fucking dumb oh yeah i mean obviously they're harmful and dangerous but they're also really stupid
0: right exactly i i mean the the character of liebkind in this movie is just the, the perfect encapsulation of that he thinks he's passing but he's wearing his helmet and his medals <laughs> everywhere he goes. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, yeah, I, the, I'm, I'm trying to refrain from making this just like a podcast where I'm just quoting lines from this movie back and, <laughs> back and forth, because I feel like it could very easily become that, because every line in this movie is just a gem. But uh, the the scene where uh, uh, oh the, the Churchill wasn't a painter. Now Hitler, that was a painter. He could do a whole <laughs> apartment in one afternoon, two coats. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, th- th- these great little ways of like deflating it, and uh, it's it's interesting to look back on it now. But like in 1967, when this came out, this movie. You know, like Mel Brooks is he's currently seen as like the patron saint of Jewish comics, you know, to to Mm. mix, you know, (laughs) mixed metaphors. (laughs) Uh, But he um, at the time came under fire from like a lot of Jewish groups because it was kind of like a it was like a too soon kind of thing. You know, this was 20 years after the war and a lot of these wounds were still fresh. People didn't really want to see Nazis being made light of. uh, Mm. And I don't think people really got what Brooks was aiming for. Um, yeah,
1: I think that's one of those things that I feel like as time goes on, it gets weirder and weirder that like you have to remind people, no, this all led to bad shit. And I feel like some of it in 1967, you didn't have to do that as much no. like people already know. like you're already assuming the audience knows Nazis did really bad shit. Right. And Mel Brooks. I mean, it's interesting. Not only is Mel Brooks Jewish, but he's a vet. I mean, he served in Europe.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, he, he
1: dismantled bombs. That, I mean,
0: <laughs> he fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Like he was, yeah. And and he he wrote a lot about how um, he was facing anti-Semitism within the Corps as well. Like while he was serving in the Army and while he was facing the enemy, like anti-Semitism was just kind of entrenched wherever he went. And he mm. wanted this movie to kind of reflect some of his anger about that and some of his own attitudes about it. The only time you get like a, a hint of a political moment in this movie is uh, after they meet with Liebkin and they tear the uh, Nazi armbands that they wore to placate him, they tear it off, they throw it in the trash, and they spit on it. You know, that's the closest we get to uh, any kind of moral compass for either of these characters.
1: Right. Who are never explicitly stated are Jewish, but they seem pretty Jewish. I mean, name Leo Bloom, you know, James Joyce reference, woo! Yeah. And and Max Bialystok, which is a city in Belarus that my family's from, actually. Oh, no kidding. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, I mean they're coded as they're pretty Jewish. Yeah, I mean secular maybe. You know, I, I mean, mean obviously Max Bielstock has basically no morals. But it's that's it, how he lives his life. Yeah, uh, but but I mean yeah, and, and a
0: lot of it might just be like the Brooks's dialogue coming out of their mouth. You know, Brooks was you know very like proud of his heritage, and he he liked to you know poke fun at it and have fun at his own expense with it as much as anybody. Yeah, uh,
1: which I feel like if there is a defining trait to all Jews, when you can just say the Jews do something, which, <laughs> which anytime is, I hear someone say the Jews, I'm like
0: carefully. yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm like making a fist already. Like, what do you got? But <laughs> the the idea of self deprecation is like the the foundation of Jewish humor. Yeah, and it's sort of like you can't beat up on me because I'm beating up on myself already. You know. Ah.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's
1: that's really, really important. And so that these are, yeah, <laughs> these are characters who are going to the lowest of the lows that they could go for fucking money, for easy money. Yeah. It's, they're not even like, oh, if we do this, they they can't just put on the play and make money and have that be it. No, it's, it's also a con.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that self-deprecating humor is kind of why it's difficult to be too offended at some of the other stuff. Like when he, you know, the the homophobic humor is, mm-hmm. it's offensive. It is offensive. But you also look mm-hmm. at it and you think, like, he's just kind of applying his own comic ethos to this cultural group. Like, which may, you know, it, it's, it's a tricky needle to thread. But, like, he, it's filled with the same kind of, like, I kid, I kid. You know, like, like... Mm-hmm you know it, it it's kind of filled with that energy it, it's difficult to describe exactly but it's just something that melbourne's yeah. can do that very few others can
1: yeah i feel like no i mean i know there's a lot more gay jokes in the musical and the original i feel like there i mean there there are two gay characters who are extremely flamboyant mm. but so much of the comedy is out of the reaction of other characters to them it's like director Roger Debris, played by the guy who played Mr. Belvedere yeah. and his partner Carmen Gia, they seem really happy and stable in their lives. Yeah. And like I, they I- they're living their best lives. It's also fascinating. It's everyone else's problem. It's
0: also fascinating to look at now because these particular stereotypes about gay people have not existed for forty-five years, at the very <laughs> least. So it's almost kind of like a time capsule. It's like, did they did they all shape their beards like Grecian statues and just like wear <laughs> extravagant eye makeup? Like, is that was that a thing? Or I don't know. And and then yeah, when you go to the musical, uh, it's you know in the movie the the parts are played by out homosexual actors and so mm-hmm. they're kind of taking it back a little bit and really leaning into it in a similar way that like book of mormon did or, or other things like mm. that so you know it, it's it it feels more like a celebration than making fun of somebody like or needlessly i don't know i guess that's yeah. kind of where i got but i'm I, you know I, I don't want to tell people what to be offended by but you know
1: yeah, and it's kind of a shocking moment when Bialystok finally turns on him and yells, you know, you lousy fruit, you ruined me. And that's sort of a moment I'm like, oh.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. because this-
1: Just, oh, you son of a bitch. He did what you asked him to do and he did it marvelously and they're a success now. And,
0: and also Bialystok doesn't come across as somebody with a lot of personal prejudices. He'll deal hmm. with anybody for any reason as long as he benefits in the end. You know, so mm-hmm. it doesn't that that did seem like a bit of a jarring moment. Like, oh, well, that doesn't seem like something he would uh, sink to.
1: Yeah, I feel bad that we've gone all this long we didn't like summarize the movie. Or anything. No, no, I'm
0: sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, this, the movie can be summarized pretty quickly. It's uh, a down on his luck Broadway producer Max Bialystock, played by Zero Mostel, is uh, uh, he he comes up with a scheme with the help of his accountant play, Leo Bloom, played by Gene Wilder, that if they can make the worst play in the history of the world. Uh, if they over, they, should they raise more money than they need to produce this terrible play, then they'll be able to keep the excess because the IRS doesn't look at flops. That's kind of the, the central argument of the movie. So they decide to produce a script called springtime for hitler which is a which is written by an ex-nazi war criminal it is a buoyant happy musical about the life and love of hitler and eva braun
1: <laughs> it's a gay romp with adolf and eva berkish <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so they hire the worst director they can find uh who's gonna have like just a really terrible vision they hire this crazy like uh, uh burnt out hippie to play hitler and then they just kind of set it loose, and they're prepared for it to be the biggest flop of all time. But the problem is everyone assumes it's a comedy because they succeeded <laughs> so uh, well in making it terrible that everyone assumes it's a joke. And now they're kind of scrambling to uh, stay out of prison in the final act of this movie. It's pretty concise, and it's there's not a whole lot here. Uh, Brooks, when he was originally coming up with this idea, was trying to develop it as a novel, and he quickly realized, <laughs> like, I don't really think there's enough here for, like, a 300-page novel. This is an 80-minute movie. It was, like, all dialogue that he was writing, and, like, I, I think I agree. Like, I don't know that the pacing would work quite well in a novel, but... Uh,
1: yeah, and so much of it, the, the visual shocks are needed. Oh, yeah. You, I feel like you do need turn-turn-kick-turn turn, turn Nazis in <laughs> polished boots and women with, you know, mugs of beer on their heads and pretzels on their boobs, you know... <laughs> Prancing along the stage in celebration of Hitler.
0: Those costumes were almost the most shocking part watching it for me now because <laughs> I'm like, wow, you do not see this much skin in a, a movie like this from back in the 60s. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, good for them. Uh, I want to talk a little bit. I want to give a small history about Mel Brooks a little bit because uh, I think this is the only opportunity I'm really going to get to talk about him on this show which wow. is a damn shame. Uh, cause
1: and it's his debut, I guess, as good as time as any. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I definitely think there are other movies that could absolutely be in the great movies list, uh, whether it's movies that he wrote and directed or movies he produced, like The Elephant Man. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yes, yeah, so this is going to be our only time. Uh, thankfully, uh, I would knock on wood right now, but I don't want to excite the dogs, but knocking on wood <laughs> mentally, Mel Brooks is still with us, 94 <clears throat> years old. Oh, did it do I it? I pissed
1: off my dog. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs>
0: 94 years old, still with us, still sharp as a tack. Uh, May he live for decades more because the man is a treasure. Uh, So Mel Brooks was born Melvin Kaminsky in 1926. And he's been obsessed with entertaining ever since he was a little kid. His uncle took him to see a show of Anything Goes on Broadway when he was nine years old, which is also a show I've been in. It's really fun. Uh, And... As a teenager, and so he became obsessed with entertaining. He would go to the pool hall and he would do like a little clown routine and he would just kind of crack up all of his family and friends. So as a teenager, he was close friends with Buddy Rich, who grew up in his neighborhood. And no shit. Buddy Rich taught him how to play drums. And so Mel Brooks was a professional drummer. He would gig around in different nightclubs around Brooklyn growing up. And eventually he got a chance to do stand up when the MC fell ill. So it's literally the same thing that happens in Walk Hard. <laughs> um, so, uh, and from there, he,
1: I can—I'll be honest—I can see him singing "You Got to Love Your Negro Man." Yeah, so I can
0: absolutely see that
1: <laughs> he could sell it, baby. He
0: could absolutely sell it, definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah. So he proved to be a pretty popular attraction, but he had to change his name because there was a popular jazz trumpeter named Melvin Kaminsky who was on the scene at the moment. So he chose Brooks because his mother's maiden name was Brookman, um, and so he kind of built it off of that. Uh, So he went to one year at Brooklyn College, but he dropped out so he could enlist in World War II. Like you said, he served uh, uh, over, he he fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He worked dismantling landmines, and he was in intelligence as well. They found he had an unusually high IQ, and they put him into military intelligence for a little bit. And in between, like in between battles, it's just like that scene in White Christmas. He was putting up a little stage, and he was putting on little slapstick shows and entertaining the troops uh, in in between disarming landmines because this guy <laughs> couldn't get any cooler so uh after the war uh brooksy got regular g- gigs as a drummer as a pianist as a comedian uh mostly it resorts around the catskills uh the catskills mountains uh in uh is it new york
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah upstate new
0: york this is like the the center of borscht belt comedy this is the center of like the traditional like kind of jewish vaudeville tradition of, of stand-up comedy and
1: Yeah, which people, if you've seen like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you'll you'll understand. Uh, You might not understand back in the day, air travel was expensive and a lot of hotels just didn't let in Jewish people. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. If you just sounded Jewish, had a Jewish name. No, you were they were restricted. Oh, geez. And so uh, Jewish communities basically made their own hotels and stuff to, you know, get out of the city for the summer.
0: And I, I would I would say like. If you have kind of a concept of what stand-up comedy sounded like in the 50s and 60s, it's these guys. It's it's yeah. this group of comedians. The kind of like you know, it's Henny Youngman and uh, 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 I'm blanking on the other name, but yeah, there's more names. I don't know. Yeah, Mel Brooks. That's a name. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So he uh, he was working in the Catskills, and uh, in the off season, he would take gigs as an announcer on radio and TV. Uh, but his first big break came when his friend Sid Caesar hired him to write on Your Show of Shows in 1950. This was a sketch variety oh my God. show with maybe the most influential writer's room of all time, maybe, out- maybe outside of SNL. Um,
1: uh, yeah, I would say the most insane writer's room of all time. So many incredible writers. I mean, besides Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and Sid Caesar... Uh, You know, Imogene Coco was a writer performer. Larry Gelbart. uh, Neil Simon, I think, might have written occasionally. Neil Simon and his
0: brother. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Woody Allen eventually. Uh, Yes. Yeah.
0: And Uh, the most important uh, friendship that Brooks made uh, during this time in his career was with a comedian named Carl Reiner. Uh, R.I.P. uh, Just lost him last year. Uh, Reiner and Brooks, they would form a lifelong friendship, and they also have one of the best stage acts of all time. <laughs> Be- they're best known for their bit, the two thousand year old man, uh, which is uh, look it up on YouTube. It's still out there because they they took this thing to pretty much every late night TV show in existence. Uh, this was such a popular act, and it's incredibly funny. Uh, And so because of the popularity of that routine, Brooks was hired to run his own show, which is the spy comedy Get Smart. I did not realize he was the creator of Get Smart. Yeah. That one ran for five seasons and spawned uh, two movies. Uh, Although Brooks actually stepped away after the first season, I believe. Like, is that all he worked on? Something like that. I think
1: so. I know. I feel like... Buck Henry is also credited as a creator, so I don't know if they just handed it off to him or where that went. Yeah, Yeah, I
0: feel like Buck Henry is the name I most associate with that show. But yeah, Brooks was definitely instrumental in the early establishment of it. So, all right, so here we are We're in the late 60s. Brooks is already in his 40s. He's already an established comedy veteran, and he decides he's going to start directing. He's going to make his directorial debut at the age of 41, and that's for this movie, The Producers. And I'll talk a little bit about the development of that in a moment. Uh, He followed this movie up with The Twelve Chairs, which I think is the one of only two Brooks movies I have not seen. I haven't seen this, and I haven't seen Life Stinks, but I've seen all the rest Mm -hmm. of them. Uh, And this was it's okay. This is like something about people of like Mel Brooks and uh, uh, Woody Allen's generation. They really like to make fun of Russian literature. (laughs) So like because Woody Allen did uh, uh, Love and Death around the same time, which was like a a spoof on Chekhov, you know, like. So I don't know what that was. (laughs) I think it's that's that's been kind of lost to time, I think. But uh, in 1974, Brooks bounced back from the critical and commercial flop that was at 12 Chairs with the double-barreled shotgun of Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Sorry, Frankenstein. They came out only months apart, which astonished completely, me to learn.
1: Completely, completely insane. Who's, How is that possible?
0: Like, this, this sounds like I might be minimizing it, but, like, the only other year I could think that is comparable in the comedy world is Jim Carrey in 1994. And I know that sounds like minimizing a little bit, but Jim Carrey became a multi-million dollar superstar over the course of one year. And Mel Brooks produced two of the funniest comedies ever made months apart. So, you know, sometimes lightning just strikes like that. Um... And both of these films were huge for Brooks. Uh, they earned more Oscar nominations. They were generations of fans. And this paved the way for his fantastic career, which included Silent Movie, High Anxiety, History of the World Part 1, Spaceballs, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and shockingly, his very last movie, Dracula, Dead and Loving It, from 1995. He has not directed a movie in 25 years now, which I th- yeah. I knew that intellectually. I did, but just seeing it, I'm like, wow, that's... yeah, uh, Dracula, Dead and Loving It, not... Really worth watching, except for Uh, Peter McNichol, who is (laughs) like, this is one of the one of those performances. It's like, okay, this is worth watching the entire movie (laughs) for Peter McNichol as (laughs) Renfield because he is so funny in that. Um, And during the 80s, Brooks was kind of expanding his brand a little bit as well. And he started working on producing movies some more. Like I already mentioned, he produced The Elephant Man, which was the breakout like mainstream uh, debut of David Lynch. And Mel Brooks, being amazing, took his name off that movie because he was worried that if people saw that this was a Mel Brooks production, they would assume it was a comedy. And he didn't want it to get confused that way. So he took his name off the movie, you know, and then officially, like, he, you know, when it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, he was back in contention.
1: Yeah, it's pretty funny uh, reading stories about how he decided... I mean, he's the one who hired Lynch, Mm -hmm. and so apparently he was like, well, I heard this guy made an interesting movie called Eraserhead. Uh, I'm gonna go watch it, and then I'll schedule a meeting with him. And he watches Eraserhead... Right before he has the meeting with David Lynch, apparently just kind of runs into the room. And they're like, You're the craziest son of a bitch I've ever seen. You're hired. <laughs> I,
0: I, would, I just love the idea that those two would be in the same universe, let alone the same world. I mean, that's just.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Like, you don't have to look at a racer head and think, You know what? Mel Brooks would love this. Like, I don't know. <laughs> there's just nothing about it. I didn't realize he also produced uh, Francis and David Cron- Cronenberg's The Fly. Like, yeah. I did not realize he produced that. He also produced My Favorite Year, which is an absolutely wonderful movie oh my with God. Peter O'Toole. Uh, and it's kind of based on Brooks' experience working with Errol Flynn on your show of shows. Yeah. Uh, very... One of
1: my absolute favorite movies. Oh,
0: that movie is a treat. Absolutely. Check out My Favorite Year, everybody listening, if you have not seen it yet. That is a delight. Um, all right, and so the the kind of final act, well, hopefully not final act, but the the last act of Brooks' career so far has been on Broadway Because in 2001, the uh, theatrical production of The Producers opened, and it is still, to this day, one of the biggest hits in Broadway history. It ran for 2,500 shows. It won 12 Tonys, and as we already discussed, it spawned a major motion picture. It's, yeah, and uh, there was a Young Frankenstein adaptation after that as well, which I have not seen, but I know that NBC's doing, like, a live version of it next year, I believe. That's going to be their next, like, live Broadway to do that they've been doing lately
1: well, that'll be fun yeah,
0: i think that'll be a good one because i think yeah, yeah that's, i like that's, doing
1: something that's it's familiar but i haven't heard the songs to it yet yeah exactly and it's not you know traditional rogers and hammerstein or whatever yeah something i think different.
0: a little more fun yeah i'm I'm excited for that one uh in addition brooks also wrote and created an animated spaceball series during this time but that didn't really go i've never seen any of it but you know he wrote several episodes and did his own voice like yeah, that's good. that's pretty cool Uh, And so Brooks, he was married to Anne Bancroft, the absolutely brilliant Oscar-nominated actress for more than 45 years. She sadly passed away back in 2005, and they have four children, including, and I did not know this, the author of World War Z, Max Brooks, is the son of Mel Brooks. Did not know that until I was researching that today. Super cool. And Brooks is one of the only people to have an EGOT in addition to an award from the Kennedy Center, a star in the Hall of Fame, a lifetime achievement from the AFI, and the National Medal of Arts, which was laid on his shoulders by one Mr. Barack Obama. Great picture, by Oof. the way. I love that picture. Like, what the hell? What kind of career is this? And and he's still going. <laughs> he's still going. Uh, man, I love Mel Brooks. Yeah, I- I'm- this is yep. making me want to go back and rewatch all of these movies we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, so it is. It is bold, though. And you think, like, okay, stand up, yes, get smart, okay. Your show of shows, he's got clout. That this is that the producers is what he wants to open with. Yeah, that he wants to potentially torpedo his career (laughs) by making something that is very offensive because it treats Nazis as such a fucking joke.
0: Yeah, and I mean, this was originally called Springtime for Hitler. And he was having a really hard time selling a movie called Springtime for Hitler. Uh, one, I, I, there's a great story about one producer tried to get him to change it to Springtime for Mussolini because Mussolini was nicer. <laughs> so I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, but yeah, this this took him a while to find some funding for it. Uh, he he initially he eventually secured. About a one million dollar budget, which is about seven million dollars today, pretty modest. Uh, Hmm. And he brought in Zero Mostel, who was a very, very popular stage actor at the time. He was fresh off the success of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, Uh, and he was also he uh, Mostel had been blacklisted for years and years. Like he was like blacklisted before there was a blacklist because he's had like lifelong kind of leftist uh, uh, sympathies. And so mm-hmm. and and also he could be, you know, a lot. He could be very difficult and kind of abusive <laughs> and difficult to deal with. But he was a brilliant, charismatic actor. Um, yeah, he
1: originated Fiddler on the Roof, I want to say. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they brought in Gene Wilder to play the role of Bloom. And Wilder had only done Broadway at this point. Uh, he he right. made his film debut kind of around the same time as this in Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, uh, which... Where
1: he's got pretty much just one scene, but it is memorable as heck. It's super like, if you're memorable. watching that movie, unfortunately, the ending will probably erase your memory of most of the rest of the movie because it's so shocking. Yeah. But mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of like, who is that guy? Because he does so much with not talking very much. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he's taken hostage by Bonnie and Clyde's gang. And, and then they get really annoyed when they find out that he's a mortician. And his girlfriend is with him and she's giving him hell. And yeah, it's so, so little and subtle. And in The Producers, it is a fucking masterclass oh in neurosis and anxiety. He goes so big that some. I mean, it's both funny and a little bit terrifying. Like if yeah. you were in the room with him, you would probably just run away. Like, ah, I don't know what your problem is. Why are you screaming my blue blankie? Uh, <laughs> <I mean>, fuck.
0: <laughs> this this must have been like, I, I would have wanted to be on this set at the time. Apparently that scene where he's having his big freak out was shot at the very end of the day. And so they just had to like dump a bunch of coffee in him basically to get him to that level. He was exhausted. He didn't want to do it. Uh,
1: fucking great. Pulled an Oscar nomination. He was Still his only one. Crazily, yeah. I, I
0: thought for sure he would have gotten another one since then. But uh, yeah. yeah,
1: like Willy Wonka, maybe Nope.
0: Yeah, nothing, nothing. Nope. But man, there is no one in the world like Gene Wilder. Uh, he he just he's got this really bizarre next level energy that uh, he just feels out of time all the time, and he's just so good. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, uh, this was Brooks's first attempt at directing a movie and he would later recall in interviews that he was a bit of an asshole on the shooting of this because he was very insecure and he genuinely did not know what he was doing. His famous story mm. is that, uh, on the first day for the first scene, when he went to yell action, he said, cut instead. And everyone just looked at him <laughs> confused, uh, because he just got <laughs> nervous and forgot. Uh, and then he fought with Zero Mostel a lot, who, uh, was, was a big, difficult personality, but they did... Have a great deal of respect and love for each other, and uh, they they spoke very kindly of each other after that. Um, and the initial release of this movie was pretty disastrous. Uh, a lot of mm. distributors refused to show it at all because of that wow. whole uh, the, the just the bad taste of it. And uh, they did an initial screening in Philadelphia that Brooks claims was only attended by a couple of homeless people. I don't know if we can necessarily <laughs> believe that, but that's what he says. He says there was like a couple of bag ladies in there. And the movie likely would have been shelved completely if it didn't find a very surprising benefactor in Peter Sellers.
1: Oh, I was going to bring this yeah. up. I'm glad you mentioned this. Yeah,
0: Peter Sellers initially had signed up. Well, he didn't even sign on. I guess he said he agreed to play Bloom. And then when they tried to call him to bring him in for it, he just never answered his phone again. Like, so I, I think he just agreed <laughs> to do it and then forgot and walked away. So, he would do that sort I, of thing. He was an odd dude. Yeah, I could 100% see yeah. that happening with Peter Sellers. But he saw the the movie privately after it was finished. He thought it was the funniest yep. thing he'd ever seen in his life.
1: Which is how he saw it privately is also a crazy ass story. He was working with Paul Mazursky on a movie called I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, yeah. which is, a, I, I mean, a very early pot comedy, yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. And, um, Mazerski was telling him, like, oh, I've seen this amazing Fellini film, Evitaloni, and we should watch it, and we're going to make a bunch of pasta, and it's going to be great. And they get to the screening room, and they don't have the Fellini film, <laughs> they have the producers. And they just go like, yeah, okay, sure. sure, whatever. And Sellers is so gobsmacked by it that he took out ads in the trades to tell people... This is a work of fucking comedy genius.
0: When is the last time something like that happened? That somebody who has no affiliation with a different... I mean, again, this sounds like I'm minimizing it. I'm not trying to. The closest thing I could think of is when Will Ferrell kind of went way out of his way to uh, hype up the foot-fist way, which kind of, like, uh, uh, started Danny McBride's career. Like... That was just a bootleg video that had come to him and he and Adam McKay just watched it like 30 times in a row and couldn't stop laughing at it. And then they just like distributed it.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, George Clooney in South Park. That's right. George Clooney in
0: South Park. Yeah. He was was, kind of the same thing. He was one of the ones that got the card. Right. The little video Christmas card. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Somehow he got his hands on it and was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And and spread it around and they got a TV show.
0: I mean, that's, that's amazing when that happens. And that's basically what saved this movie is Peter Sellers taking out that ad and encouraging people to see it. When it finally came out in theaters in early 1968, it made its budget back and nothing more. It just pretty much barely mm. broke even. But it picked up like a cult following. And over the course of the 70s and 80s, like it became a college campus favorite. And it just became more and more esteemed as it goes on. And now it's looked at as one of the funniest films of all time, if not the funniest, some would argue. The AFI, yeah. they did their list of the 100 funniest comedies. They had this at number 11. They have Blazing Saddles mm. at number 6. I don't know. I might switch them. Blazing Saddles is crazy funny. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if yeah. which one I'd switch. But hmm. it's, it's a tough call. It's a tough call. That
1: is a that is a really tough call. That's a,
0: that's a kill your I... darlings kind of moment, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess... In some ways, I mean, because Blazing Saddles is making fun of a particular genre and also the ridiculous inherent racism yeah. of that genre and America itself. Oh, it's tough. Whereas this is, I mean, not a parody, but it is satire. Yeah, yeah. So this
0: one's mm. probably more of an original. story. I think I might give it to I'm, I might give it to the producers. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. going to go with the shorter one. I don't know. I I tend to go like, what's the shorter <laughs> movie? I'll go with the producers. <laughs> But yeah, uh, kind of surprisingly, this movie wound up getting nominated for two Oscars, despite the reviews being pretty brutal at the time. Uh, A lot of people just said it was an amoral movie. uh, And Brooks won Best Original Screenplay. He beat Stanley Kubrick for 2001. He beat John Cassavetes for Faces. Like, he he beat some (laughs) heavy, heavy hitters. And... (laughs) No one was more surprised than Brooks. You know, there's the whole shtick sch- where you're like, uh, oh, "Oh, I can't believe I, I I don't even have a speech prepared." He literally did not have a speech prepared. He thought there was no way in hell he was beating Kubrick, uh, but yeah, he did, and it kind of uh, nee. shocked everybody. But it's still a good call. Um. So yeah, I mean, I I do want to talk about kind of one of the things that people were harping on about this movie being so offensive wasn't even so much mm-hmm. the naziness of it all. It was the Complete and utter lack of morality from Bialystock and Bloom, like oh god, they are yeah. from the first frame completely self-motivated. Uh, uh, they are duplicitous. They will con and lie and steal and sleep their way to the top.
1: Now I think Bialystock is Bloom gets suckered.
0: Bloom gets suckered into it, but yeah, he
1: starts out. He's a nice guy. He's just trying to do his accounting job. But he is a very, very weak person, yeah. and it does not take much to bully him into, no, come on, it'll be fine. No, let's go talk to this Nazi. It'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, let's go. I'm going to go steal from old ladies. It'll be fine. And he just, he has no spine. He can't stand up for himself. Yeah. So he just goes along, encouraging it along the way. But yeah. Max Vialstock is, <laughs> he is so <laughs> immoral that, I mean, he survives by conning old ladies uh, by through romance, yeah. He
0: he. Uh, the moment we meet him, he is banging an old lady, and then he is, incur- <laughs> he is engaging in a uh, very odd uh, kind of romance with another old lady who just goes by the credits are uh, uh, the name of uh, uh, Hold Me, Touch Me.
1: Yeah, Delwynwood. Uh, Wynwood. She was in a lot of stuff way the hell back in the day. She lived twenty years after this.
0: She was in her eighties <laughs> in this movie. She lived for another twenty years. Oh she was she was interviewed about this movie later, and she hates it uh she said uh she oh oh, i forget what she called it let me see it was like she said that she must have needed the money or something because she would never agree to do this otherwise uh but she hated it she uh yeah she called it that dreadful picture yeah so when asked about it uh it's
1: probably the most famous thing she's in still and i mean this day so come on
0: super funny in this like she's incredibly funny uh yeah and she
1: just wants to do her weird chauffeur role play or, or the milkmaid and the naughty stable boy you know she, the line, she's the, she's good to go the,
0: the, the rape of lucretia and i'll be raped <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> just hearing the word rape in 1967 in a movie too is just shocking yeah uh, so yeah i mean that's how we kind of meet them you know the the general convention that you hear when you're talking about filmmakers uh, uh, who make comedies is that comedy kind of lives in the medium, you know, like you you don't want... It lives in the wide shot. Uh, mm. And Mel Brooks kind of flips that on its head, and he he zooms in real tight on these faces yeah. because I think he's very assured at how funny these faces are and how grotesque these people look up close. That, oh, yeah. Like, it's, uh, it works... So well, when you cut in really close to Zero Mostel's face, and his eyes are bulging, and he's sweating, and he's got uh, that—he's sweating. Masterpiece he's got a terrible... of a comb over.
1: Oh, oh my God, the comb over! It is is so bad, and it's it's the kind of comb over that like he didn't work too hard on it he thinks he's getting away with it this is not like a, a christian bale american hustle come over where it's very complicated yeah. to make it all work he really just swat 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 now i'm looking good <laughs>
0: And it, it looks like it's being held in place by sweat <laughs> like he looks unhealthy Ugh. but he's still just like running around with like all this like this energy of a man half his size. Like he is this big, boisterous performer and mm-hmm. uh, really great, like physical counterpart to Gene Wilder, who's very thin and very reedy. And they spend a lot yep. of the movie with their cheeks touching. Like <laughs> Mostel is like in his face the entire yeah. time. And because Constantly. it's making him so uncomfortable. And he just knows that. He knows that if he makes someone like with this kind of anxiety, uncomfortable for long enough they're gonna do yeah. whatever you say to make them stop being uncomfortable
1: yeah that's that's a good point about going into close-up as opposed to medium shot where it's like yeah that's kind of the images i think of in this movie is gene wilder doing something and zero mustel just sort of looms in from the side of cameron gets right in his face until he does what he wants it's just physically imposing into the space on and the space is you know the screen yeah
0: I, I really is like,
1: of course, you're going to do what he wants. Go away. I
0: really hope that Wilder had some kind of earplug in for the help scene <laughs> where <laughs> this theatrically trained man with this big, booming, projecting voice is inches from your ear and screaming at full volume. Like, I really I hope he had some <laughs> kind of implement in there to help him. Uh, Wilder's freak out in this early scene When he realizes he's being asked to do something illegal, he's reaching for his blankie. The reveal of the blankie and the absolute, (laughs) total, complete, infantile meltdown that he has when his is taken away from him. He
1: turns so many colors. (laughs) You can watch the color in his face change like a freaking chameleon. It's amazing.
0: I don't know how these two guys were able to maintain this tone for so long, like for days and days of shooting. And I mean, this was a quick shoot. It came together within like a couple months, you know, of its release date. Like this was a quick shoot. But they are going for the rafters. They're going through the (laughs) rafters. They're going through the stratosphere. Like it's, they're such unhinged performances that it's just, it's kind of, it's an amazing physical feat to watch. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah.
1: It's exhausting to think about Doing any one of those takes doing it just a second time. Yeah. I'm like, no. Can I have a nap first? Like, give me a day. <laughs>
0: yeah, give me something. Give me give me all the cocaine you have. Go uh. on an Easy Rider set. Take all their cocaine. <laughs> um, we, we've been talking a lot about movie like I think the the vast majority or not the majority, but the the, the, the years that are represented most on Roger Ebert's list are like nineteen sixty seven and nineteen sixty nine. Because we're mm-hmm. in this very weird place in cinema where, like, the Haze Code yeah. is a relic. Like, we're, nobody's really taking it seriously anymore. So mainstream movies don't really know what kind of tone to set anymore. They're still doing right. Bible epics, which people aren't seeing. They're still doing splashy, like, Technicolor musicals, which people aren't seeing. Darby O'Gill and the Little People, you know. Like, we're, we're, yeah. we're doing things like that. And so the movies that this year of these three years are kind of testing the waters a little bit. And that's what the producers is doing with comedy. Uh,
1: Yeah, but, I mean, you think about, well, what is is the objectionable content? Could you make this movie in 1940? And uh, sort of. I mean, Ernst Lubitsch gets around the edges of this, like with To Be or Not to Be, which then Mel Brooks stars in a remake of. But making fun of Nazis, that's fine. But, uh, you know, implied sex stuff Maybe, yeah. but it's not like they're swearing. There's no gore. There's no titties. Like, yeah, yeah. You could tone this down just a wee tad, and you would have been able to pass the code without a problem, except for the morality issue.
0: Right. That's the one big thing. <laughs> is just that these guys are out for themselves. They are out to defraud a lot of little old ladies out of a lot of money that they don't ever play. Like, yeah. there's a gleefulness yeah. to their schemes. Swear-
1: and they sort of get punished, but not really. Not
0: really. No. And the end of the movie, they're pulling the same scheme again like, yeah. with just a worse musical.
1: The Prisoners of Love. I mean, you can't keep our hearts You in wouldn't jail. watch that? Yeah. You wouldn't watch that? I want to watch Singing and Dancing Inmates. Come on. See, and that's the
0: thing I don't like <laughs> about the, the musical version. It's like that they they put on Prisoner of Love and then the warden sees it and thinks, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. Your sentences are commuted. Go put it on Broadway. And they go off and their big Broadway successes after that. And I'm just like, oh. I'm missing the point here. These guys should not be benefiting from any of this. Like they're not heroes. Yeah. They, they should, you know, they're no. we see that they're unrepentant to the very last moment, uh, <laughs> which is great. I think that's the funniest and strongest part of this entire movie is like, and that's what really kind of makes this one stand apart. Um mm. We do need to talk a little bit about Kenneth Mars because he plays, oh, yes. he plays Franz Liebkin, the, uh, the Nazi screenwriter uh, and slash pigeon keeper. Uh, yeah. He
1: hates Churchill. Sounds like he, went, sounds like he went a bit method. Like we were talking about how, I don't know how they keep up this energy to like scream in each other's faces this whole time. The discomfort that you see on Mostello and Wilder's face around kenneth mars apparently some of that is quite real
0: real like oh, did he go full nazi
1: he, he didn't go full nazi but he decided well this guy is a weird hermit so i'm just gonna wear the same clothes for a week and not shower
0: okay
1: all <laughs> right well so they are physically uncomfortable there's a couple moments where you see like oh th- that's acting but a li- there's a little real there. yeah
0: yeah yeah i mean
1: but he is amazing Hysterical. i mean most people would probably remember him from young frankenstein that's as it. as the whatever he is law enforcement guy i was trying to think of arm. where else
0: i knew him from like i know he's he's been gone many years of course but like yeah yeah and uh yeah so we get um uh oh why am i blanking on his name christopher uh, mr belvedere uh uh christopher hewitt, christopher hewitt thank you who, who plays roger debris the Broadway producer that they bring in, who is, we first meet him in a full ball gown. Uh, yeah. Again, not subtle with the humor here. and
1: He's going to the choreographer's ball. He has a reason to be wearing it.
0: I And I love them breaking down his thought process. He wants to do this movie, or this play, Springtime for Hitler, because he's tired of doing all these splashy musicals with the one, two, kick turn, one, two, kick turn. And then when he's brainstorming ways to improve the show, he's like, Let's make it a musical. I see them in stormtroopers <laughs> and jackboots. One, two, heel, turn. One, two, heel, turn. Change the ending. They lost the war. It's depressing. <laughs> I mean, the, the, yeah. him falling back into these, like, hackish habits almost immediately is really funny to watch. Uh,
1: yeah. his, There's a really underrated line in here that is fun to say because Roger Debris' assistant slash partner, Carmen Ghia, <laughs> which i love it it. um who who looks like some sort of woodland nymph pixie man (laughs) um walks them into you know his office slash dressing room whatever and just announces himself with we're not alone that is really fun to do
0: yeah yeah (laughs) we're not
1: alone it's yeah it suggests something was about to happen but guests have arrived (laughs)
0: Put the dress back on.
1: Yeah. yeah, put your dress back on. Yeah, we have gas. Company's coming.
0: And even that, like you know, they, it, it you do get the sense that uh, uh, Bialy Stock and Bloom are maybe a little uncomfortable around these guys, but it never goes yeah. so far as like, ew, men who like men. You know, they they're they're discomforted. They're out of their comfort zone, but they are they want to work with these guys. Uh, for, yeah, for one reason oh, or another. I mean,
1: Bloom has the. Most obvious question: Where do you put your keys?
0: (laughs) It's true. I'm still curious. I'm still curious. (laughs) The audition process is uh, hysterical. When you do that sudden cut to a stage full of Hitlers, and there's like, (laughs) it's it's like uh, uh, into the Hitler verse. It's like uh, every variety (laughs) of Hitler. There's cowboy Hitler and there's Kaiser Hitler for some reason. There's a gymnastic Hitler, singing Hitler, dancing
1: Hitler like bodybuilder Hitler. Bodybuilder. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, just that's the best one. And they're all so delusional, but each one of them keeps coming up. Like, I love the guys like I was an opera singer at the New <laughs> Mexico. I was up for the lead. What happened? I didn't get it. <laughs> just, <laughs> I, and all of them are just too good for some reason or another until LSD walks onto the scene thinking it's an audition for a different play. He performs this crazy psychedelic number with his like Manson family esque band <laughs> follows him around. He's wearing a Campbell's soup can around his neck. Uh, he's just got a prison like he's he's an absolute train wreck. Uh, and Dick Sean. Yeah.
1: We don't know what he went to prison for, but it. It's something who's pretty good. Yeah. But they say, yeah, do do whatever you do best. He said, that's why they put me away, baby.
0: What <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, is this baby? Hitler never said baby. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know what it is. Is it a sex thing? Is it a drug thing? Probably both. Probably both. I Probably, don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, I could see it being But you both. can't
1: do it on stage or else they put you away. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the production, uh, the, you know, the the big show-stopping moment of this movie is, of course, springtime for Hitler. The big splashy musical number and the debut piece of the show. the women coming out wearing bras made of pretzels and great lines like uh uh I was born in Dusseldorf. That is why my name is Rolf. And uh yeah. Mel Brooks, of course, delivering the line in this movie and in the new movie, uh be it uh, don't be don't be stupid, be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party. Uh, <laughs> right. And uh the audience is agape. I love the long panning <laughs> shot of the entire audience with their mouths frozen open in horror, and they're all about to leave Bialy, Stock and Bloom are going out to celebrate their victory, but then l s d comes on and starts doing his like weird hippie Hitler thing, and people are like, "Oh, wait a minute, this is a satire. Let's come sit down and watch this, you know and uh, mm-hmm. you, know, I'll leave you, baby, now leave me alone <laughs> like, all right, so we're the Germans. Okay, so we can't invade Germany. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and they they start even singing yeah. Springtime for Hitler in the bar, and, and the look on their faces when they realize that they've accidentally made a hit, or, or what have we done right, I, get, I think is the uh, the great line. Yeah. Um, just really great. Uh, Liebkin is, of course, furious that they're making fun of uh, the Fuhrer. This is not what he wanted them yeah. to do.
1: So... Time for a shooting rampage. Time for
0: a shooting rampage, as Nazis tend to do. Uh, but first he has to hit yeah. the stage, and you would be unconscious now. Uh, which is. <laughs>
1: and then everyone thinks that's part of the show, too, of having a, an old Nazi run and say, no, Hitler was kind, Hitler was good, he wasn't like this. <laughs> it's like, yeah, even it's just, you know, salt in the wound. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I, I will say, I think the the final act of this movie where they're kind of realizing that they're about to go to prison and they're kind of like, trying to find some kind of way out of it. I think it does fall a little flat compared to everything that's come before. I feel like the energy is mm. just so high that like them kind of coming to the reckoning of of their consequences is a little yeah. less interesting to me, but like
1: Right. Well, the fact that, I mean they turn on each other and everyone else immediately because, you know, they're immoral creeps. Uh, Bloom has honestly the right idea, which is go spill your guts to the feds. Be the first one to talk. Yeah. You'll get the best deal. Uh, and then they get in a fight and then uh yeah Franz and nazi bust in deciding oh, i have to kill everyone who's involved in this because you're making fun of hitler which yeah it's a little bit it's a little less funny about that yeah, sometimes yeah. um but, but he's so easily persuaded to yes yeah, stop trying to kill everyone let's just blow up the theater i mean
0: but well they, i guess they did float the idea of killing the actors for a while too you know which which she right. have done it i suppose that's true but, uh, yeah, yeah. There's this whole subplot about them trying to blow up the theater, which you know, if you've seen uh, a slapstick comedy, when dynamite enters the scene, you know it's not going to end well <laughs> for anybody. Uh, they go to je- they go to court where they are declared incredibly guilty. Uh, and again, one of the one of the highlights of the musical is that line is delivered by Richard Kind, uh, so you know Aww. you gotta love that at least. Uh, but yeah, incredibly guilty. Uh, Bloom gives like this impassioned speech about his friend and about how they should let him off because he's such a good man. And it's summarily ignored. They're sent to prison. <laughs> and immediately they start it up again. They are trying their whole <laughs> shtick with prisoners of love. Uh, yep. I'm,
1: we open on Sing Sing Friday night!
0: <laughs> I mean, this, this movie is just a nonstop, constant barrage of comedy. Like, it, it is... Ebert in his essay, he, he said it might be the funniest movie ever made. Uh, I, I definitely think there's an argument to be made that, you know, it, it's definitely yeah. one I appreciated more now than when I first saw it 20 years ago because, you know, I'm I'm not 18 and stupid. But uh, <laughs> I,
1: <laughs> this this has been my go to for a long time of like everything just sucks and I need cheering up. This this is one of three or four movies I go to. Yeah, absolutely. This and some like it hot, which was number one on the AFI yeah, comedy list. Yeah, so
0: absolutely. Yeah. Some like it. Hot yeah. is Amazing. Like, you know, I would say the apartment would be mine, but like, that's also kind of a depressing movie,
1: but it's still, it's kind it of makes sad me happy
0: still, but you know, I don't know. Not, not one I would recommend to everybody if you're feeling bummed out. Um, but I mean, yeah. how would this rank for you in terms of like Mel Brooks films? Do you think this is your number one or
1: uh, Ooh, is it still? A... It probably is my number one. And it is a really close call between this and Blazing Saddles and then Young Frankenstein. Yeah. And I uh, and and those those rankings have moved around over time. I mean, Blazing Saddles for a while it was sort of like this is too uncomfortable. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, no, it's supposed to be. That's okay. That's good. And they're they're making fun of people who we should not like. There are
0: also large portions of Young Frankenstein that are just kind of a remake of Frankenstein. It's just kind of telling this this, the Mary Shelley story pretty straight. Uh,
1: yeah. And he, and that's one of those things. I watched the director's commentary for that and to learn like he put so much care and really studied the originals and like wanted to direct it like James Whale did yeah. and getting finding the original equipment. That was such a score. Yeah. You know, it, it's all the original 30s equipment. And just like he really wanted it to be a real Frankenstein movie that just happens to have a lot of jokes in yeah. it. Yeah. Like,
0: and that's kind of what it feels oh. like for most of the time. But it doesn't feel... As, as a consequence, it maybe doesn't feel as nonstop machine gun style funny as the producers does. I think in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, if, if you were to map this out as an equation of, of laughs per minute per runtime, you know, like I think the producers Oof. might have all of these beat, um, except, of course, for Robin Hood Men in Tights, which is the single greatest movie ever made of all time. Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna die on that hill, but I, I do think that might have been the Mel Brooks movie I've seen the most because it's the one VHS of his that we own. So, uh,
1: whatever, no accounting
0: for my parents' taste. Yeah. I
1: suppose uh, <laughs> that's okay. It's got some good parts. Their parts, their parts. Overall, yeah. I think maybe that that might be part of his sort of decline in filmmaking. so maybe he just didn't have that level of care anymore? Yeah. To be like, I really want to direct spaceballs like George Lucas directed Star Wars or like Kubrick did Two Thousand One. Nah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. And he's definitely not going like, Dracula dead and loving it. I want to go back to the Todd Browning original. Yeah, I'm really going to frame it right. That's nah, that's I, a
0: really good point. Because, I mean, he did Silent Movie, which is shot like a silent movie. He did High Anxiety, which he shot like a Hitchcock movie. Like, he was yep. he was kind of imitating these directors for a long time. And he could have made a really funny version of Men in Tights that was just based off the Errol Morris film, you know? with that kind of like
1: <laughs> Errol Flynn or Errol, Errol Morris Errol would have I'm made sorry, an amazing <laughs> Robin Hood documentary <laughs> that's a lot of close-ups of people talking about he was stealing from <laughs> us and we don't know where it went gates of he Sherwood the poor
0: yeah. <laughs> 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 well yeah Errol Flynn's <laughs> Errol Morris also probably didn't enslave people at any point in his career so you know he's probably mm. got that on Errol Flynn as well mm. um well, we're talking about Errol Flynn enslaving people, which means I may have run out of notes to talk about here. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to say about the producers?
1: I yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm interested to hear. I'm kind I like I, I've heard from people who who just plain don't like it. Um, but mostly they're people who don't like the musical. Like my husband's uncle mm. hated the musical, and I think a lot of it was because so much of the humor was about like gay jokes. Yeah, and he was just like, "Come on, what?" what? No, come on. As opposed to making fun of hippies, which is timeless. timeless. I understand why they updated it to, you know, get rid of hippies because it's not 1967 anymore, but no, there's always hippies yeah. and they're always fun to make fun of.
0: Especially if your like, story is set in the 60s like the musical is, you can just kind of, you know, keep the same old stippy, uh, hippie stereotypes around and just have fun with those, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Or Or you update it and they're like, old hippies are acid casualties or they're like new agey people who believe in like crystals or whatever there's plenty of places to go with so that. many
0: ways yeah absolutely so many
1: hippies different kinds of hippies genres of hippies <laughs> um but yeah i mean most people i know that don't like it just think it's just too tasteless to make fun of nazis because they did such despicable things yeah and they're right nazis are horrible and We should, while also, you know, stopping them, we can also laugh at them because I don't think they know how to deal with that. I mean, we see that Franz Liebkne really doesn't know how to deal with that. Yeah. He can't get laughed at. He can't can't laugh at Hitler. He can't handle
0: it. Yeah. uh...
1: No. I've always wanted, with like, you know, when like neo Nazis go out and march and stuff and Antifa comes out and they have a big fight and. I just, I've always wanted, like, I've offered to fund Antifa to have, like, a whole bunch of those squeaky chickens that make the, like, ah noise. Because I think if you show up and make the Nazis look stupid, that would defeat them better than punching them in the face. Because if you punch them in the face, then they can be like, see, I was right, white people are super oppressed, as opposed to, like, no, you guys are idiots, we're all going to dress up as bananas and play the banjo at you. Do it.
0: I think we need to get a bunch of uh like like uh uh improv students to infiltrate a na- neo-Nazi group, go to one of their rallies and then break out into a flash mob of never gonna give you up uh and uh, uh make sure the CNN cameras are on it and everything and just kind of rick roll them in person like that.
1: You know? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean as much as you you do have to you do have to shut them down, but comedy is a way to shut them yeah. down. I think it's the the bottom line on this is like no one's saying that the Holocaust didn't happen and the Nazis weren't bad guys. Yeah. They're saying they're pathetic losers. That's how they became Nazis in the first place. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And yeah, I I, I really love this movie. I think it is just like a it, like you said, I think it's a really excellent testament to like this particular brand of like Belt humor that that really self-deprecates it finds ways to poke fun it finds ways to adapt and to make the atrocities something that uh that you can like look back you can laugh at you can take some of the power yeah. away from it uh I, I think it's a really smart idea yeah. just wrapped up well, in a really specifically,
1: funny show it? <clears throat> i mean specifically it no one says anything about nazis killing people no one ever says the holocaust that yeah no one they barely mentioned the war except to yell about you know churchill yeah. i hated churchill, churchill. so much Churchill couldn't dance like Hitler. Yeah, <laughs> it's which I, you know, I actually might
0: believe that.
1: You know, I could probably believe yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, Churchill does not look light on his no, feet. No, not necessarily. So yeah, I mean they're already taking out the serious stuff that's obviously too serious and just going to the basic idea of like this was this is a weird cult that we should not praise. Let's praise <laughs> them. Oh my god, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, it's like having Charles Manson the musical. Yeah, yeah, it's like that's like no bad things happen but it's also like he's pretty funny because he's so stupid yeah so yes make charles manson the musical Yeah,
0: exactly present them as clownish and incompetent and and that'll be what people remember you know that's kind of what you want yeah. i think that's the goal uh well thank you so much diana for being here oh my god this was so much fun for me um where, where can people <laughs> find your amazing stuff
1: Uh, They can find me on Twitter at listeningerd, L-E-C-I-N-E-N-E-R-D, or they can listen to me every stinking week on 302010 That's on Twitter at 302010podcast. We talk about the movies, TV, music of one particular week, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and 10 years ago. So now heading into 1991, 2001, 2011.
0: And oh. literally one of my very so, favorite shows ever, and uh, I'll I'll plug your Patreon because I'm actually going to be on the thirty twenty ten games edition, uh, that's hey. in, uh, for the November, uh, and it, it's really great, and you can only listen to that through Patreon. That's la- it's uh, Patreon dot slash Laser Time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So definitely check that out. Check out thirty twenty ten. Check out all this stuff. Uh, we are Rogers List Pod at Twitter and at Instagram and all the different places. Send us an email at rogerslistpod at gmail Let us know what you think. Next week, I am I am having a hard time thinking of a harder pivot uh, than the movie mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about next week. We're going to be going from talking about the producers to El Topo, Alejandro Jodorowsky's <laughs> extremely bleak, <laughs> experimental psychedelic. Uh, desert drug movie uh, which I, I've seen once I don't understand it at all uh, I'm hoping to understand it even less the second time around so yeah if you want some whiplash listen to the producers and El Topo back to back uh, we will be back for that next week thank you everybody have a good night it's
1: for Hitler and we